they've spent tens, if not hundreds and in, of thousands of dollars and some people millions of dollars to progress over this bridge, this proverbial bridge. Children who were being abused by their auditors during the sessions, and when I mean, mean abused, I mean sexually abused, they can harass you, they can um, uh, try to ruin your life basically. When a child is abused, it, it, they look to the child as to why did this happen? And so they will go after each aspects of that person's most cherished part of their life to literally ruin them and utterly ruin them. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice thought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable, however, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Parallel Justice, where we look at civil justice sought for criminal acts. Today, we have a very special episode for our listeners focusing on Scientology, and we're talking to the attorneys who are fighting to protect its victims. I'm your host, Renee Williams, Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime. Now, because we are talking about Scientology today, before we begin, because of the nature of this episode, I want to remind everyone that these discussions can be very triggering, and so we encourage our listeners to practice good self-care. We also want to acknowledge that this issue is extremely controversial, but NCVC leadership recognizes that these are current and very real issues in victim services. We all know that religions have extreme sects that have split off from the parent church. This is not an attack on those who practice Scientology. Rather, it is meant to discuss the abuse that has become rife and very public within the church. With that, I want to introduce our three very special guests who are fighting to protect these victims every day and have really put a lot on the line and face a lot of adversity to do so. Attorneys Brian Kent and Guy D'Andrea of Laffey, Buki and Kent, 
and Jeff Fritz of Soloff and Zerbanos. So just before we begin today, I'd like to ask the three of you to introduce yourselves, starting with Brian. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Brian Kent. I'm with the law firm of Laffey, Busey and Kent in Philadelphia. And Guy, would you like to introduce yourself to everyone? Sure. My name's Guy D'Andrea, and I'm also with the law firm of Laffey, Busey and Kent, and I've been practicing law for 13 years. And last but certainly not least, one of our favorites, Jeff. Good afternoon. Yeah, so I'm in Philly along with Brian and Guy, my colleagues, and I'm, I'm practicing in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Been representing victims for about the last 23, 24 years. Awesome. Well, thank you all again for joining us today. And I just want to get started on a very foundational level so everybody's on the same page. For listeners who've maybe only heard bits and pieces of Scientology in the news or, or have only seen certain things, I want to scale it way back to the basics. Can, can somebody give us a thumbnail sketch of the foundations of Scientology? What's the background of the religion? How did it start? What are their basic beliefs? What, what happens in that church? Um, all right, I can try to take this uh, with Guy's help, hopefully. Um, so Scientology, or Scientology was created by uh, an individual by the name of L. Ron Hubbard. Um, I won't get into his whole background and um, how he developed it, but basically um, the core tenets of Scientology were meant to get you to a better quote unquote plane or um, awareness. So the bridge to freedom in Scientology um, was meant to get individuals who um, are part of Scientology to a higher level of uh, clarity, uh, awareness, or what Scientologists call clear. Um, and there are numerous different practices that are designed to get you uh, or to progress you up the bridge to freedom um, to that to that level of clear. One of the chief or main um, uh, practices that Scientology incorporates is something called auditing, which is meant to um, identify things that are being withheld by an individual, whether that's uh, a disturbance in them psychologically, things of that nature, um, past issues in their life that they're still holding on to, um, things like that. And then you, it's, it's almost like a confessional, like you, they ask you questions during that auditing process where someone is sitting across from you. That's the auditor. They, um, and they're really like, it's really like an interrogation. So they have a set designed sort of, uh, question list that they walk through with you, um, in terms of trying to get out information that you will be withholding. Now, one of the sort of um, controversies with Scientology is that, you know, you're, you're divulging quote unquote secrets that you have may, may have um, or withholding from the religion. Um, so they will potentially know your deepest dark secrets. Um, and that goes, they, they ask questions as it relates to your sexual history, uh, masturbation history, um, whether you have abused children in the past, um, all things like that during that, that auditing process. 
one thing I forgot to talk about is you uh, during the auditing session have something that you're holding on to. It's two like almost metal uh, rods um, and they are attached to something called an e-meter, which is supposed to be measuring your electric waves uh, during the questioning section to see if they're sweat session to see if there's something that you are not divulging when you're being asked these questions. Um, and, and that's a basic tenet. So of, of Scientology, it's a, it's a huge practice. And it's also a, a huge way that they make money um, because individuals will pay for auditing sessions uh, when you are in Scientology. Not will they pay, they're required to pay for these required auditing sessions while you're a Scientologist. So it makes up um, a portion of what Scientology makes in terms of that. But yeah, I mean, a footnote to that too is there's been challenges in the past um, where the IRS sought in, in the United States sought to say that this was a business and not a legitimate religion. So uh, that issue has come up. Uh, there's, it, it is still to this day considered a religion. And so I think that's a great segue to a question I want to ask Guy. Scientology's gained a lot of followers, a lot of big name followers. So, so what is the religion? What is the appeal? And, and what's the end game for Scientology? Sure. So the appeal in large part from research and speaking with witnesses and people who have devoted a large portion of their life to Scientology is that when you go in, these practices that Brian just described and will describe throughout, that's not told to the person who's first seeking potential salvation, if you will, through Scientology. So when you present yourself to a Scientology building outpost, whatever it may be, you're told among other things that if you come in as a Catholic, a Christian, if you believe in Judaism, they don't tell you up front that you need to abandon those religious beliefs or your core values. Instead, it's sort of presented as a way, for lack of a better term, of enlightenment. There is something that's making you seek out this particular religion or this particular organization, whether it's trouble at work, trouble with a loved one, trouble with a child. And it's almost a form of we can get you better, right? We can help you almost like if you were to go see a therapist, right? The purpose to go see a therapist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist. And so when you start in the very beginning, it all is incredibly positive from what's been told. It's totally separate if you're born into it. So that's a whole other discussion. I'm talking about people off the street who weren't born into it and maybe don't know anyone who's in Scientology. So they're told all these great things. And in the beginning, those things appear to be helping, right? It seems to be a very helpful mechanism to address those issues. And then as you grow, for lack of a better term, it, you're sort of in this catch-22, right? You're now, you've been indoctrinated to some extent. It has helped in many ways. And so when things start to sound strange or become even potentially or if not explicitly abusive, the person is left with, but this has helped me all along the way. This has been good. So I need to stay the course because there is something about this. And maybe I just don't understand this process, but all the previous processes have helped me. And the end game 
is to achieve, as Brian had discussed, this bridge to total freedom and the highest level of the enlightenment that you can achieve. But from everyone that I've spoken to about this, I don't know anyone who's ultimately reached or ever reached that end game, right? That, that final result, that total enlightenment, that bridge to freedom. What they have done to attain or obtain rather these different levels and progress, they've spent tens, if not hundreds and in, of thousands of dollars and some people millions of dollars to progress over this bridge, this proverbial bridge. So I, I think we've probably all seen the videos or they're very easily available on YouTube of, of the Scientology propaganda and, and what they're using to encourage it. And frankly, if you don't know anything about it, it does all sound great. So that leads me to where's the religion gone wrong? What abuses are you seeing? What's, what's actually happening? Um, I think with any religious organization, like when you are abusing in the name of the religion, um, you know, I, I, and there are abuses in the name of the religion. Some of the practices themselves are abuse. And I'll, I'll just give you a, a couple of examples. Um, they have auditing for children. Um, you know, you're required and, and children are um, a part, uh, become part, can become part of what's called the Sea Org, Sea Organization, which is sort of like the elite level of Scientologists. Um, uh, and uh, they are subjected to um, pretty severe um, auditing sessions where even a, a child can be asked about their masturbating habits, their sexual background, you know, things of that nature. We have had uh, people that we've spoken to um, who uh, were children who were being abused by their auditors during the sessions. And when I mean, mean abused, I mean sexually abused. Um, so there, there, and that is a practice. So auditing where you're asking these children about their sexual habits and practices, that's, that's a form of abuse that is basically their policy, right? So that's, that's one thing, but they also have things such as like Scientology prisons for people where they can be, um, you know, segregated to this certain area, uh, be kept without really the basic day-to-day -day things that you need um, to live normally. Um, and kids will be subjected to that as well for extensive, extended periods of time. And again, that's a, sort of a religious practice and policy. Um, and I know we're going to talk about fair gaming, which is also a, a, uh, practice and policy and a tenet of, of Scientology, where if you are declared an enemy of Scientology, or um, you do something um, sort of that is um, uh, not in support of, of Scientology, you can uh, be subject to fair game, which means that they can harass you, they can um, uh, try to ruin your life, basically, and again, that's a religious doctrine. It's a tenet um, that L. Ron Hubbard um, certainly preached about and put into practice. And it, we still see it with regards to our clients today as to what happen, has happened to them. So I think there's multiple different facets of Scientology 
that have gone wrong, but I can say that the practices and policies that L. Ron Hubbard came up with from the get-go certainly had um, things that um, have led to the abuses of multiple individuals. And if I can just sort of piggyback on that in terms of where things have gone wrong, one of the most shocking things that you learn within this organization is that children who are born into this organization who don't know any better and truly don't know any better because they have no access to internet. They are not allowed to contact civilian attorneys, therapists, police. They're told they are absolutely enemies of Scientology and they will do nothing but harm you. And so what you're left with is if a child reports a sexual encounter with an adult, and I'm specifically saying sexual encounter because we would all call that a sexual abuse or assault. Adult should never be having any sexual contact with a child, but that's not how it's understood within Scientology because albeit someone may appear to be a child, in other words, it is a seven-year-old to the rest of the world, in Scientology, that individual has lived tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of years. They've lived several, several, many lifetimes. And so it's not a child. And so if a child reports that an adult had a sexual encounter, i.e. a sexual assault, what happens is the child then is interrogated through the auditing process because it's believed that if you are claiming that someone did something that you are now saying wrong, and if you're going to call it a rape or a sexual assault, that you yourself, either in this lifetime or a past lifetime, had done that to someone else. So now you have a seven-year-old child, I'm using that as an example, sitting in a chair, having to state who they sexually assaulted in a past lifetime, which I think we can all agree. I mean, that's you, you'd be making it up, right? I mean, you'd, you'd have to sit there and make something up, right? No one's lived a past lifetime, right? So, or at least if you did, I can't imagine you could remember it, right? So what, what the child is then made to do is tell a story about how he or she sexually assaulted someone else. And that ultimately, as a result of that, it's why this adult sexually assaulted them because they were putting off that energy. And I come from a background before I was involved in working with you guys in representing Scientologist, Scientology victims, victims within Scientology. Um, I was involved in Jehovah's, representing Jehovah's Witness, still involved in representing Jehovah's Witness victims and victims of child abuse within that. You see a lot of similarities uh, in these religions. I mean, you know, first, they're both religions, but on top of that, you know, this, this isolation that Guy was talking about, you see that within uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, but another similarity, you were talking, Brian, about fair gaming and that process of if you're somebody who speaks out against the religion or somebody who leaves the religion, now you're subject to fair gaming. Well, look, if you went to the headquarters right now or, or you went to uh, David Miscavige, they would tell you that, no, that doesn't exist. It, it, it just doesn't exist. Now, one time it was in writing and it was the official policy. It's not the official policy. That's I think that's the type of an answer that you would get. But what we've alleged, and we're going to talk about some of the, the cases in which we're representing survivors, is that you know they have one kind of official word on what they believe and and what their 
policies are, but in reality, the practice turns out to be different. And I see that in Jehovah's Witnesses and other religions where officially everything looks good on paper, but in practice, it's something entirely different. Is that what you've noticed, Brian? Yeah, I, I, I have, and it's, I'm glad you brought up the similarities between the Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Scientology because, you know, there's sort of a, 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 a basic premise, I think, you tell me if you agree, Jeff, that when a child is abused, it, it, they look to the child as to why did this happen um, instead of looking at the perpetrator or the institution itself as to why did this happen? Like, what did you do to bring this on? Um, and uh, I also think that from a reporting standpoint, and I, I don't know if you would agree with this, Jeff, but Scientology absolutely prohibits any reports being made to police or the courts if you know of a child who has been abused or you know of somebody who's been raped or sexually assaulted or something like that you are required to bring that you know only within the within the church and the church will deal with it but you are 100% prohibited from going outside of the church and if but, you do go ahead but Brian, is that in writing? Does it say you're absolutely prohibited? That that's kind of what I'm talking about. Well, I, I, I actually think that may be in writing, but um, not having it in front of me, I don't, I don't want to, you know, use the long, wrong language. Um, but it is absolutely a practice. You know, it's one thing to have a policy; it's another to have a practice, and that is 100% the practice, and that's what's ingrained, especially in the Scientologist that. You know the the young Scientologists that are either born in or come in at a very young age, um, that's ingrained in them in their training and things of that nature. That if you go outside, and we've seen it in our own cases with our own clients, you will be potentially declared an enemy of Scientology and subject to this fair gaming policy. One other thing to add as well in terms of where they they've gone wrong, and this is public. I think they've they've pronounced this, professed this. Uh, but this goes back to L. Ron Hubbard's uh, just personal um, animosity towards the field of psychiatry and psychology. They uh, absolutely are against any form of uh, therapy, psychology, or psychiatry. And uh, if you have a child who has been abused or a rape uh, victim survivor who has been assaulted, um, they will not, pursuant to the tenets of Scientology, and cannot get medical therapy, uh, you know, psychiatry or psych psychological help. Um, everything has to happen within the religious organization. Um, so, you know, there, those are two other aspects when we're talking about crime victims and uh, and and especially child abuse and sexual assault survivors some of the mountains that they have to climb when and if that does happen to them in Scientology. And if I could just, you know, in terms of the fair gaming and the distinction between policy and practice, sort of throughout these cases and our research into this, we've had a lot of people, not clients, but people who want to or potentially want to be witnesses. And we have, including myself, interviewed very high-ranking members of Scientology who were members within both the United States and at points in time, the international 
uh, Church of Scientology who were specifically in charge or tasked with implementing fair gaming. And so what one of the things to understand when we toss around the term fair gaming, the tenets behind that in, in terms of what they the people implementing fair gaming are instructed to do is because of all these all the auditing sessions, the interrogations, by the way, are videotaped. Okay. And so you know, basically, and you, there's no, whether you've been assaulted or not assaulted, everyone has to go through the audit, auditing process and tell the worst things about them, whether it's true or not true, right? They force you to say things. You can't leave the room. Point being, when it comes time to fair game someone who's now been deemed a suppressive person, they have all this information on them, whether true or untrue, right? And so they scour the records and documentation and they find the three aspects of the person's life that are most valued and cherished by that person. So maybe it's family, maybe it's work, maybe it's education, maybe it's a combination of different things. And each one of those aspects of their life, a different person is instructed to essentially, and the words that they used to use in writing were utterly destroy. And so they will go after each aspects of that person's most cherished part of their life to literally ruin them and utterly ruin them. And they do it by releasing information, by going to the person's work, by sharing videos with the people's children. I mean, it's just horrific forms of harassment to the point where it, it, it brings stalking and harassment to a level that uh, is I've never seen before. What's the, the common thread in all of this that keeps coming up is this level of secrecy. And this really shroud of mystery and and just the tight hold that the church seems to hold on all of its members. So I think that leads to the obvious question of how did you three get involved? How what was the impetus for folks to finally break away and and start filing these suits? Yeah, I mean we got involved in large part because we are attorneys who have dedicated our careers. Um, Brian and I as former prosecutors and Jeff for the past, as he indicated, 20 plus years representing and fighting for survivors and victims of crime, specifically physical and sexual abuse most often. And that's what Brian and I now do exclusively within our firm. And that's what Jeff does at his. And so we do it nationally. We have fought for and been ideally a champion for all sorts of survivors who've experienced sexual and physical abuse at the hands of Catholics, other denominations of Christianity, Judaism, Jehovah Witnesses, right? Universities, daycare centers, you sort of name it. If an institution is allowing, even if large parts of that institution are good, but if an institution is allowing the children or adults within its organization to be sexually or physically abused, harassed, harmed, bullied, you name it, we have been there to fight for those individuals. And I think in large part, that's how we were worked into this. Yeah, and I'll just, uh, just in addition to that, like we, we recognized uh, from the get-go that this was gonna be an, an absolute battle, right? A, a huge fight um, because Scientology, we've we talked to people that have handled cases against Scientology. We know their litigation tactics from the past. So um, we knew that there was going to be a, 
not only a huge quantity of things that we were going to have to deal with from a litigation standpoint, but um, from an issue aspect of things, a lot of different issues um, that, you know, maybe there are other attorneys who um, could weigh in and help with regards to dealing or, or, or chiming in about those issues. So that's why we, you know, we knew the best approach was going to be a team approach. So that brings up an interesting point. Part of this podcast is looking at how civil justice is applicable in certain cases, either where the criminal system fails or where it's not appropriate. So you've put together this amazing litigation team. Why do you think these cases are more appropriate for the civil litigation? Uh, let me let me tackle or start to tackle that a little bit. Um, so you know, the thing that we hear over and over again, especially by criminal defendants in criminal cases that, well, these civil lawsuits are just about money, you know, they're just after money. Uh, I can honestly say, I don't think I've ever represented anybody who was a victim of a crime, an innocent victim of crime that said, you know, I want money that, that, you know, that's the main reason I'm here. There's so many other reasons to get justice. And that's, you know, if there's one common thread, I think, and thank you so much for doing this series, Renee. Um, it's about what the other benefits or, or what the other reasons there are to pursue civil justice. And yes, sometimes there either was not a, a criminal prosecution or maybe there was one and it was unsuccessful. And the only way that that victim is gonna see any level of justice is by bringing a civil case and finding out what happened, how was this allowed to happen, um, what can we do to prevent that in the future. So that's common and that's really part of what we see in these cases here in representing victims of Scientology. There are so many other reasons such as, as just holding people or institutions accountable um, in you know, forcing change to prevent this from happening again, changing the policies within the institution. Change, look, in the Sandusky case, it led to a wholesale change in the law across the United States because of how horrible that uh, child sexual abuse case was covered up and, and it led to a wholesale change. Um, but, you know, one of the other reasons too is identifying perpetrators. So if there's a short or an expired statute of limitations or time limit uh, within the criminal system and somebody can't be charged because it's too late and you know there's many reasons that victims don't come forward immediately. Sometimes it's only the civil justice system which identifies the perpetrators because if that's the only thing that can be pursued now with a different or a changed statute of limitations, um, then that's gonna identify perpetrators, get them out of society or at least get them out of the positions where they might have access to children or, or other victims. So what's interesting in this case is with regard to some of our clients that we represented, uh, we filed a civil case and in the middle of our civil case, then criminal charges were filed against uh, one of the alleged uh, perpetrators uh, in the case and that can happen too that's what's happened here so you've got this unique scenario where you have this civil case pending and the criminal charges pending at the same time which creates 
a host of issues um, that we that we have to deal with as victims attorneys. And you know, if if in terms of if I can chime in for a minute, a hundred percent agree with everything Jeff said, and and just to to add to that, you know, as a as a former prosecutor, you have a situation, and you know, one of the most prominent situations we now see is the Catholic Church, right? You. So if a child is sexually assaulted by a Catholic priest, right, sure, as a prosecutor, I would happily prosecute that priest. And the target would be the abuser, right? And the information that you would be entitled to from search warrants and whatnot would be specific to what that priest did, not what the church knew, not what the church has known, and not what the church has done for what we now know for the better part of a century. And so the criminal case, of course, would get criminal justice for the sexual assault survivor, ideally, if the jury and the facts established the guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and the jury found that, it would it would provide security and safety for the community against that individual priest. But from a civil perspective, certainly we could go after the perpetrator. But the reality is, and and sometimes what is equally important is to expose the institution that's allowed it to happen, not just in one instance, right? When you really do a deep dive. We get access from a civil perspective to records that the criminal prosecutors oftentimes won't get. So it was because of the attorneys in Boston in early 2000s, right, who were taking the very unpopular position to sue the Catholic Church at that time that exposed, right, spotlight. I mean, they, they exposed the Catholic Church, and we now know about the secret archives that existed since 1900 in the United States of America that has dossiers on thousands of priests that have sexually abused children. That never would have come out had it not been for civil lawsuits exposing that institution, but now we know many institutions that have allowed this. So I think you probably then answered this, but but what were your big goals in going into these cases and in taking these cases on? So, I mean, obviously one of the things that, um, we wanted to do, well, I shouldn't say we, um, I should say our clients wanted to do was expose the things that were happening behind closed doors. Um, uh, and that has proven very difficult with regards to the, the web of, uh, you know, sort of agreements that Scientology has makes you sign when you're, when you're in Scientology. Um, and, and I'll expand on that in, in a little bit, but um, I think their goals were to expose what was happening uh, and, and what, what did happen to them, for sure. Um, but additionally, like at least with regards to four of our clients that we represent, who Jeff had mentioned, um, they did not have a criminal case that was pending when we filed, was to, to start that process. And, I, and Guy touched on the importance of uh, civil litigation from a multitude of different aspects. But, uh, you know, we have the ability to build a case just like prosecutors do. And I think that when we started to do that, I should say when our clients started to do that, because it was really them, um, you know, I think it made it, it, it difficult and the continued pressure not only from having an existing civil suit that was filed, but their continued advocacy and work um, about what happened to them for the prosecutors not to bring charges at the end of the day, um, and which is ultimately what 
what they did. But, uh, you know, our, our clients have been horrifically harmed. Um, you know, we represent rape survivors. We represent child abuse survivor, survivors um, that were also fair gamed after everything that they went through um, and significantly harassed uh, beyond belief um, after what they either left Scientology or when they went to the police. So the real hope is that people will see what is happening in Scientology and exposing these abuses and ultimately, hopefully putting an end to it. Um, you know, some of our clients still have family members that are in Scientology that they're not able to have communication with because they've left and they have hoped that they see what's being alleged or they see um, what comes out in these lawsuits or these criminal prosecutions and, um, you know, question their association with, with Scientology. So um, ultimately, our clients just want to expose the abuses that are happening, get justice for what's happened to them, and try to prevent this from occurring in the future. So we just talked about the criminal justice aspect versus the civil justice aspect. And there are a couple of things in civil justice that are very different. And I think one of the big questions and something that's been very publicized is that Scientology has tried to move this case to arbitration. Now, some of the public is not familiar with arbitration, um, and sometimes that's not appropriate. So can, can somebody give us a brief overview, first of all, of what arbitration is? And if you're willing to accept that in this case. Just so we're clear, we're not talking about arbitration here. That's not what this is. And it, it's religious is, arbitration, right? right? There, which is yeah. a misnomer and it's not a thing, right? So let me, let me, arbitration, arbitration can be beneficial, right? But that's when all parties consent to it. There's a difference between consensual arbitration and forced arbitration. But that again, that's not even what we're talking about. Here, people, even children, are, are forced to sign, and I'm not making this up, one billion, with a B, a one billion year contract. Because again, Scientology believes that you are hundreds of millions of years old, and you are going to live for billions of years, right? So you're forced to sign this billion year contract, as well as a whole host of other contracts, which outline what your quote unquote rights are. Now, the fascinating thing is in Scientology, if you were harmed and you have a proper lawsuit, they raise this forced arbitration clause that they say the person signed, oftentimes under threat, oftentimes almost literally gun to head, right? Person standing in a room with a gun and, and you're being told, sign this um, or you're not leaving. Now, what does religious arbitration in terms of Scientology look like? Your guess is as good as mine, right? So in other words, we don't know. We're not, lawyers are not allowed to be there. Stenographers, which are you know court reporters are not allowed to be there. The individual who's going through the arbitration doesn't get to pick their people. Meaning typically how an arbitration works is you have three people. One person, the plaintiff picks, one person, the defendant picks, and a third person, both sides have to agree on. So you have two arguably biased people. I mean, they're not supposed to be, but right, two people picked by either party, and then one person who's truly neutral because they were chosen by both parties. That's not what happens here. The people who would sit on this panel, and I don't even know how many because Scientology won't tell us and there's no documentation. They say you have to go through this process, but won't tell you what the process is. We've tried to get that information uh, because they're telling, they're saying 
your clients have to go through this process. And we say, okay, well, what's the process? Well, we're not going to tell you that. And so what we do know, what little we know is that it has to be Scientology members that's selected by either David Miscavige or his people, the head of, of Scientology. Again, no one else is allowed to be present. It's not allowed to be recorded. There is no advocacy because the person can't bring a person, a lawyer with them. So in other words, imagine this, you're raped inside of Scientology once, twice, dozens of times as a child, you finally escape as an adult, you have the courage and the fortitude to go to an attorney who then files a lawsuit on your behalf. And now you're being told you have to go to this quote unquote forced religious arbitration where you have to present yourself to a Scientology building that has again, armed guards surrounding it, enter that building by yourself, the very building you escaped from finally, and go through a process that Scientology won't describe. So you're walking into the building where you were abused for X amount of times or X amount of years, not knowing what the process is and not knowing when you're going to be able to leave. That's what they are purporting should happen in these cases. Yeah. And, and just in addition to that, the people that are judging you have to be Scientologists in good standing. The three people that are going to determine like, what's the outcome of this whole scenario? And they're forced to treat you as an enemy of Scientology because you've been declared a suppressed person. You're out. You're gone. So um, it's impossible to ever get any a fair decision on it because the people that are making that decision have to treat you as an enemy. So yeah. So what we've done is is we have fought that, and uh, in California, and that case or the the uh, trial judge's order to force these cases into arbitration or some of the cases into arbitration um, has been appealed. It's on appeal right now. And ultimately, it could be an issue uh, that could reach the U.S. Supreme Court uh, on First Amendment issues. Let me just let me let me just piggyback on that. That so when a court orders this unconscionable arbitration, this religious arbitration, you have a state court ordering a religious practice. That's what they're doing. And so there is no separation of church and state when that's being done. You have a state court saying to someone, your only remedy is to go through this religious arbitration. And since it's religion, I'm not even going to get involved in what's going to happen when you walk into that room. One big question and something I brought up in my intro from NCDC's perspective is this, these are critical is issues in victim services right now. This is an attack on Scientology. And I said that very clearly for a reason, because a lot of the response to these lawsuits and the lawsuits against the Catholic Church and Jeff, certainly when you were representing the Jehovah's Witnesses, is that these lawsuits are really one, a violation of religious freedom, and two, that they are just really a war with ideology and, and that anybody who fights them are anti-religious. How are you countering that narrative? How do you support your clients through leaving the church and being told that? And do you have any advice for any other attorneys who are in this situation? If I could address it first, and I know Guy and Brian have thoughts on this, but I, I wanna be clear, and I think I speak for Brian and Guy about this too. I don't have a problem with, with religion. I don't have a problem 
great. People believing what they want to believe from a religion. Uh, you know, I was raised religiously and we know, and that's part of the beauty of America is that you have a freedom of religion to practice the way you want to. What I have a problem with is when a religion says, well, we're just going to do things our way and it starts affecting children and harming children or harming its its members where they want where the religion or the institution wants to ignore the laws that are applicable to everybody that's what i have a problem with and that's what that's the way we address that in in court as well i, I mean guy thoughts yeah, on no, that yeah absolutely i mean when, when we get attacked for coming after religious beliefs and religious tenets I'll put a, I was born and raised Catholic, Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, Catholic college, right? Still Catholic. My family is devout Catholic. I have sued with Brian as well as other you know, colleagues, the Catholic church, a countless number of times. It's not because I hate my religion or I hate the beliefs of the Catholicism. It's because raping a child has nothing to do with the tenets of Catholicism, right? It's so far outside. And when you look at what they defended on these are religious practices well if you take it to its most extreme if not if child rape is not the most extreme if you take it to its most extreme well what if the tenant is we're allowed to have pagan sacrifices and we're allowed to slaughter one of our members uh, within the church we would say no you can't it's murder you can't do that right and the state would step in why would it be any different when we're talking about child sexual abuse or adult sexual abuse for that matter no religion can write into its doctrine that this is okay, and then us as a society says, well, we can't stop it because that's their beliefs. That's nonsense. They are, they are committing felonies, and when you do that, that is not a religious belief, and to say anything else and to stand up there and say, how dare anyone challenge that because this is our rel religious belief is nonsense. And as, as our good friend Marcy Hamilton and co-counsel in these cases would say, you can believe whatever you want to believe, but you can't do whatever you want to do. And that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. If you harm people and you're harming kids and abusing them and harming adults, uh, sexual assault survivors, um, you're going to be held accountable. And that doesn't, ma it doesn't matter if you're a corporation, uh, a religious institution, a private school, a public school, it, it's all the same. So I think the final question for, for everyone, if someone's listening to this podcast and they have a loved one involved with Scientology and they have a reason to believe they're being abused, given all you know, how do, you, how do they get help for that loved one or even for themselves, even though from what I'm hearing, they're probably not listening to this podcast? Yeah, you know, it, it really, Renee, it depends, right? I mean, because there are definitely different levels of Scientologists, and that's my word in terms of levels. I mean, that's not a word that they would use. So in other words, you know, the celebrities that everyone sees on television, they don't go to the blue building or main building. They have literally celebrity center. They have their own building. They come and go as they please. They pay Scientology an obscene amount of money, and they have a totally different lifestyle and experience with Scientology than everyday civilians do. Then you have people who are Scientologists who do in some part come and go, right? They're, they are people who believe in the tenets and the faith and, and they have some autonomy in terms of coming and going. And then you have the individuals who live there who are the, the core, right, of the Scientologist in terms of, and we're talking 
a tremendous amount of people. And Brian and Jeff and I, the people who we have largely fought for, often fall into that category. So to address it for someone who is on the outside and has a family member literally on the inside, it's really difficult. Uh, if you go to California where the Blue Base is, one of their main buildings, uh, it's an interesting thing to observe. It takes up and a huge landscape in Los Angeles and surrounding Scientology, the building, and I've never seen this at any other church before, uh, are armed guards everywhere. And that's not from my perspective and from what we've told talking to high ranking people, that's not to keep people from coming in, that's to keep people from coming out. And so it's scary and it's alarming. And a civilian who's not a Scientologist can't like, can't just walk through the front doors of the blue building to say, hey, I want to talk to my sister Susie. That's not going to happen under any circumstances, right? There's no way to call that person on the inside. There's no way to have access to that person. So it's really challenging. And then on the flip, end, flip end, if they call, if the civilian who's non-Scientologist calls the police, well, the police are going to need to talk to the person who's alleged to have been or being abused. And if they're not given access or the person is so scared to not talk to them, what are the authorities supposed to do, right? I mean, this is a church. They can't just go in, right? It is does have the, the cloak of that. And so the state is going to always be very careful. And so it's really, really challenging. And that's not to keep bringing it back to these lawsuits, but the more exposure this gets and the great work that's done by many other advocates who aren't just lawyers, but who are outspoken against this organization, not necessarily in its entirety, but in some of the practices, in large part, the abuses that have been committed. It's all of these advocates who are giving a voice to those individuals who are still in Scientology, still being abused, and not knowing that there is, in fact, a potential or a way that they can be helped. Hey, Renee, I'm going to turn this question around to you. Where could somebody find experienced, dedicated victims' attorneys? Well, it's amazing that you ask that because at the end of each one of these podcasts, we have an outtake that directs everybody to victimbar.org and victimsofcrime.org, which is the National Crime Victim Bar Association and the National Center for Victims of Crime. Now, but in all seriousness, now, the, the, how, the, there's like 400 members, uh, member attorneys across the country and I, I think the important point, sort of why I brought that up, is um, I think it's important if somebody's you know looking for advice of what their rights are as a victim, to speak to somebody who's experienced and experienced in representing victims and and maybe even representing victims of Scientology or other uh, religious organizations about what their rights are. That is about all of the time we have for this, but I did want to make sure that I gave all three of you the opportunity to jump in with any last words, thoughts, or guidance for victims of crime, victims of Scientology in general, specifically or in general. Now, I mean, I will say, um, you know, the, uh, the individuals who are not here, Marcy Hamilton, Bobby Thompson, and, and, um, uh, especially Stu Ryan, who has worked tire tirelessly on these cases. Um, the, to echo what Jeff had to say in terms of the attorneys that 
have experience doing this, not only experience in terms of litigating and the issues that come up during litigation, but uh, are dealing with trauma um, and having a trauma-informed practice is of the utmost importance when you are um, trying to select who your lawyer is going to be. So um, I, by all means, go through the National Center as Jeff and Renee talked about, but if you do not, um, and you are just trying to find your own lawyer, um, make sure you're asking the questions about their experience, about the level of trauma-informed practice at, at their firm, um, because they should be making sure that they're still keeping your best interests um, at the forefront of any decision that's gonna happen, including whether or not there should be a lawsuit filed. So, um, that's what I would hope people would, would take away if they see this video, that these cases are extremely difficult, extremely complicated. Um, but when you find the right lawyers to do it, um, the, it, it, it can be certainly a huge part of the healing process from the trauma that they've, they've endured. Yeah, and to just pick up on Brian's point and, and Renee's point, um, you know, just because somebody goes and seeks help as a victim and they think, well, I might have been wronged here with, within Scientology, within any religion, um, just because they go and, and seek some advice, that doesn't mean that it's going to end up, maybe it's not the best decision for them to pursue litigation. So I think it is important to underscore that when you talk to an attorney or you talk to the National Center for Victims of Crime or the National Crime Victim Bar Association, it is confidential. And that doesn't mean you're committing to pursuing uh, a, a lawsuit because that might not make sense for you or there might not be a case to be pursued. I just want to thank all three of you again for talking us through this and for your work on this case, Brian Kent, Guy D'Andrea and Jeff Fritz. For more information on any three of these amazing attorneys, please check out the show information page. We will be posting links to their website, um, and you can also reach us at victimsofcrime.org. Thank you guys for coming today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.